0: I'm Scott and I'm Jason. Welcome to Skipped on Shuffle, a podcast where we delve into an overlooked song by a popular artist.
1: Today we're going to be looking at the song Never the Machine Forever by Soundgarden from their 1996 album Down on the Upside. I'm excited to do this episode because Soundgarden is, you know, one of my, one of my favorites. One of my, this is like one of my favorite bands from this, from this decade that they're in the the nineties, but overall, like also just like one of my favorite heavier bands of all time. I think that they're just so creative and they do so many different things that you, you don't really expect from what is pretty much a classic metal heavy rock band in the, in the realm of like a Led Zeppelin or a Black Sabbath or whatever. So it's it's fun to listen to Soundgarden and to talk about them because there's so much going on that maybe the casual listener is missing out on.
0: Yeah, I think if your familiarity with Soundgarden is like Black Hole Sun and um, Burned in My Hand, then you you kind of have a very different idea of what this band is. Yeah, they're a very heavy metal band um, despite kind of getting swept up in the 90s grunge movement and they're definitely a part of that and part of the... Seattle music scene but yeah I I think if you're not too familiar with Soundgarden hearing a lot of the earlier material you might be kind of surprised and since since our focus is on overlook things definitely you know check out the the earlier albums because there's a lot of just cool stuff on there and yeah this is a band that I'm excited to talk about one of my favorites you know Growing up with, with the with the '90s, you know, grunge movement. This is definitely kind of in, in our wheelhouse.
1: Yeah, and then we have a a, a a significant personal connection for the both of us to 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 Soundgarden as a group, and we're going to get into that later on in the episode. But this is actually a particularly interesting band for for actually for you and I to talk about because this is something that we both have you know like done we've 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 shared a lot of experience together with Soundgarden so this is a this is going to be a particularly special episode for the two of us to talk about We're going to delve into the history of Soundgarden for a little bit here. So Soundgarden starts in Seattle in 1984 with Chris Cornell, surprisingly, on drums and vocals, Hiro Yamamoto on bass, and Kim Thale on guitar. Eventually, the band brought in a different drummer so that Cornell could focus on singing, which makes a lot of sense, especially nowadays when we think about Chris Cornell, like most people think of him as. I
0: can't imagine sc- screaming and drumming. At yeah, the-
1: that must have been really crazy. <laughs> So they bring in a new drummer, but after about a year with this lineup, that drummer left and new drummer Matt Cameron stepped on board in 1986. This cemented the band's original lineup. One night at a Soundgarden performance, a popular radio DJ was in attendance and was blown away by the performance. He called Soundgarden, quote, everything rock music should be. He agreed to help fund a recording session for the band, and eventually contributed twenty thousand dollars to the advancement of the band's career. So this guy, he was he was pretty impressed.
0: I've I've heard a lot of good bands, I've never been like, shut (laughs) shut up and take my
1: money. (laughs) From this recording session, the band released "Hunted Down" as its very first single. Hunted Down did fairly well for an independent release, and Soundgarden released a pair of EPs over the next two years. These EPs attracted the attention of major labels, and Soundgarden ended up signing with SST Records and releasing the band's first full-length album called Ultra Mega OK in 1988. The first single from that album called Flower, which was written by Kim Thiel, got regular rotation on MTV. Although Flower and the first album did pretty well for a brand new heavy rock band, even earning them a Grammy nomination, Soundgarden was pretty disappointed with the record and the label, especially the sound of the, of the album itself. Shortly thereafter, the band left SST Records and joined with a and Records, which is a much bigger label. This caused a rift between the band and its early fans as the audience felt Soundgarden was selling out. Now, if you weren't around for the 90s music scene or don't know much about the 90s as far as the music goes, selling out was was a major thing. And nowadays I feel like people don't really talk much about selling out. I don't really hear too many people complaining about like, you know, oh, so and so sold out because they, you know, left this label to jump to another label. I think I think that it's it's almost like accepted now that a band would give their music to a commercial or, you know, have a big banner behind them when they're playing that promotes like I don't know Heineken or whatever you know I feel like that's a lot more common now and people don't really talk about but to understand how big of a deal this was you have to understand that in the 90s you know what label a band was attached to was almost as important as the band itself
0: yeah and I mean this is a, a lot of the Seattle bands at this point are still far more underground you know there's no you know major label signing for bands like Nirvana or Pearl Jam or anybody at this point so it's really just this interesting movement of bands trying to find a sound and i think some possible some some of the possible concern might have been this band is going to sign with a major label soften their you know sound and it's going to be less raw more produced and you know, I I can imagine the fans being scared, like they're gonna lose like the the quality that that DJ heard. Where it's just like this band is like in your face and loud, and some record you know exec is gonna come in and be like, "Whoa, we can't release that." Let's, let's all <laughs> let's all calm down here.
1: Yeah, so this was a big concern, but the band went ahead and did it anyway. Once on A and M Records, the band entered the studio to record its second full length album, which is called Louder Than Love. At this time, there were many interpersonal problems with Soundgarden, which is going to be a recurring theme that we're going to talk about later, mainly revolving around bassist Hiro Yamamoto. According to Chris Cornell, Yamamoto essentially excommunicated himself from the band aside from recording and touring, which pushed Cornell to become the band's primary songwriter. From Louder Than Love, the band's single Hands All Over is a standout track. The lyrics of the song caused quite a bit of controversy, most notably with a line that says, Kill Your Mother. This caused Soundgarden to have trouble selling the album at traditional retail outlets, but check out Hands All Over right here. A month before the tour began for Louder Than Love, Hiro Yamamoto left the band, leaving the band you know, obviously in a bind. They've got this tour ready to go in a month's time and they have to find a replacement. He was temporarily replaced by Jason Everman, who notably was the original second guitarist in Nirvana. After the tour for Louder Than Love, Everman was let go by the group and new bassist Ben Shepard joined. This is finally what's now perceived as the defining lineup of Soundgarden roughly seven years after it formed. (laughs) With Shepard on bass, the band became more creative and more ambitious musically. This revitalized the group and helped turn their next album, 1991's Bad Motor Finger, into a true mainstream crossover success. The most notable single from Bad Motorfinger was the track Outshined, which received heavy airplay on MTV and rock radio. You might have heard this, this pretty classic grungy riff uh, as soon as the song starts. It's that very discernible like, oh, yep, this is Outshined. Notably, another single from the record was Jesus Christ Pose, which once again earned the band some controversy for its lyrical content, which some perceived as anti-Christian. This once again caused protest and even death threats for the group.
0: With Jesus Christ Pose, Cornell has talked about this and he said it's a song about people with persecution complexes. And I remember hearing a a rumor somewhere that he had uh, Jane's Addiction's lead singer Perry Farrell in mind when he actually wrote the song.
1: That, that would be interesting. I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't consider Perry Farrell to be one of those persecution complex people. I would think it would be more like a a Jovi or somebody (laughs) like, I I think it was was
0: some kind of, you know, also control freak. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. 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 I'm not quite sure what the, the, the reasons were, but I remember just hearing that as, as a possible motivation for, for the song.
1: Which is interesting because people are are trying to say that it's like this anti-Christian thing when really it's it's not. It's really just more of a criticism of people who kind of use the image of Christ for their own. You yeah, know, yeah. If, if if anything, if you actually interpret it that way, it becomes like this kind of very pro-Christian thing of being like Jesus was a cool dude, and these you know jerks are like kind of taking that image and using it for their own vanity or whatever. But. But it's metal music, and, they, metal say, music, and they say yeah. Jesus Christ, so clearly, yeah, clearly it's 666, it's, six, six, <laughs> the Satanist devil music. <laughs> Bad Motorfinger was a big success for the band, earning them another Grammy nomination. After the very long touring schedule surrounding the album, the band headed back to the studio to record what would end up being not only its biggest record, but also one of the most important and popular records of the 90s, Super Unknown. Chances are, if you know a Soundgarden song, it's from this record. Spoonman, My Wave, Fell on Black Days, and The Day I Tried to Live are all from this record. And of course, Super Unknown also features the band's signature song, Black Hole Song. Super Unknown was massive. It finally earned the band two Grammy wins, and the tour surrounding the record was the biggest yet. The band was now officially a popular mainstream group, in spite of its early beginnings as an underground metal band. After the tour for Super Unknown concluded, the band once again entered the studio to record the album Down on the Upside, which is where today's song, Never the Machine Forever, is from. During the recording of this record, the band was having a difficult time keeping it together with Chris Cornell wanting the group to move away from the trademark big metal riffs of the band, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. The band held it together long enough to release the record, which featured lead single Pretty Noose. once again set on a tour to promote this new record but it ended up pushing the band too far shortly after the last scheduled tour date the band announced it was breaking up in April of 1997 after the breakup Cornell started a solo career and then formed a super group called Audio Slave with former members of Rage Against the Machine and Matt Cameron joined Pearl Jam while Dial and Shepard contributed to records and toured with other bands we're going to talk a lot more about Chris Cornell in uh, future Skipped on Shuffle episode, which will probably be centered around Audio Slave. And we might even do one for Cornell himself. You know, after Soundgarden breaks up, Cornell is a very, very busy guy. Lots of stuff going on there, but we're going to, you know, touch on that kind of thing later. It wasn't until 13 years after the band split that the band actually reunited for a tour and then a full length album called King Animal. The band was in the process of making its seventh album when Chris Cornell was found dead. He had hanged himself in his hotel room after a Soundgarden performance. Uh, Cornell's death was a devastating blow to the world of music and, of course, effectively ended Soundgarden. There's really no way that the band could continue without him. But now let's go back to 1996 and talk about the song Never the Machine Forever from the album Down on the Upside. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Skipped on Shuffle. Right about now, in most podcasts, you'd be hearing an ad for something. Uh, but we are trying to keep Skipped on Shuffle ad free. And the way we're going to be able to do that is through Patreon.
0: Please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com/slash skipped on shuffle. Any donations go to support the costs associated with running this podcast. We'll talk about the album in a second, but it's kind of important to... I think revisit right after the album comes out because I think when they're on tour, a lot of the problems in the band become a lot more visible. I think people heard the record and they were like, oh, this sounds different from previous Soundgarden records, but I think them on the road made it pretty clear this band was quickly coming to an end. So to promote Down on the Upside, they actually tour with Metallica as part of Lollapalooza. It's interesting to read some of the interviews about this period because they almost seem to not at all want to go out on tour, and Metallica's insistent that they want to go out on tour together and play together so the band agrees and they do that tour afterwards they continue doing their own tour to promote the record and you just have to listen to the band live at this point in time for some god-awful reason someone somewhere decided to release a record of the down on the upside tour it's called live on i5 and you just need to hear how bad <laughs> this band sounds at this point and and i i, I wish i could be kinder <laughs> ab- about it but it's like chris cornell's voice sounds just shot uh, i think he did have some kind of throat problems at some point during the tour, I can't remember if they had to cancel or reschedule. Yeah, there was there were a couple of
1: days they had to cancel, but they ended up making them up before before the band split.
0: Yeah. yeah, the the band is doing interviews and they're talking about just the transactional nature of what touring has become for them. Where it's like, oh, the fans give us money, we go out and you know play because they gave us money, and that's how this works. Yeah. Like they, they they're not there's no real passion there, and I think you can hear it in that in that live record at their very last show, which is uh, in Hawaii. Bassist Ben Shepard is really frustrated throughout the show. Allegedly, it has to do with sound problems at the show. Who knows if that... That is, was probably it, just the probably straw, just, the yeah.
1: birth the back kind of thing, yeah.
0: Uh, so he throws his bass, he flips off Kim specifically, flips off the audience, and then <laughs> storms off the stage. The rest of the band leave the stage, and apparently Kim and Ben Shepard, the bassist, are backstage yelling at each other and apparently almost come to blows. They refuse to go back out on stage, so apparently just Cornell and Matt Cameron come out and play appropriately enough. "Fell on Black Days," <laughs> although we could we could probably pick any
1: <laughs> a, 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 any song and, and be like that makes
0: sense. Uh, they come out and try to basically finish the show and give the fans something, but that effectively ends the band so that's that gives it. you that's
1: the last performance of the band until they uh, end up yeah. regrouping later
0: um, but that at least gives you kind of some idea of what it must have been like in the studio as they were working on this album because clearly things that were going on in the band carried over onto the stage um just to give you I, I think some better idea of how bad things must have yeah, been. Yeah,
1: it's clearly for 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 things to get to that point where 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 Shepard is literally throwing his instrument down, walking off stage and flipping off everybody. That doesn't that doesn't just happen. It's not like he was just like one day woke up and had a bad day. Like this is clearly the culmination of, you know, months or even years of of unrest within the group, which, you know, got really big relatively fast i mean we you know we we like we said at the top of the episode they start in 1984 like that's when cornell and and kim and and, and they start getting together and playing this music so now we're we're in 1996 so it has been 12 years and obviously shepherd hasn't been in the band for that long but this is this is a long time coming and there was like you know a good chunk of time where the band was fairly underground they were on an independent label or whatever and then bad Motorfinger did pretty good. Yeah, it's probably those sing. five years. Of, and then yeah. all of a sudden, bam, like super unknown was not only a massive hit for the classic rock audience and the grunge audience, but like just regular rock radio. Like this was being played to people who normally listen to traditional pop music. I mean, it was, I, I think it was played at like the same station that was playing ace of base at the time. <laughs> You'd hear ace of base and then black hole sun right after, like that's how big this record was. And so, yeah, you can imagine like that would throw, you know, a more independent artistic, less mainstream band into some disarray and being like, oh, you know, what do we do? Like, how do we... And especially to call it quits
0: so shortly after that to to, to really announce like, no, we're not just going to all take a break and you know talk about it later and come back to definitely be like we're done
1: yeah we've 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 ridden this ride as far as we can go for now and now we just got to call it quits so so yeah so while we keep this in mind while we talk about the creation of down on the upside and this song never the machine forever because all of it's going to tie together into this into this moment where where the band like literally just comes apart at the same
0: Okay, so the band does a big tour to support Super Unknown, play a ton of shows. Uh, They get back to writing in 1995. They know they want to produce this record themselves. The band was really happy, obviously. I don't know how you couldn't be with Super Unknown, uh, but they didn't really like the the working relationship they had with the producer, Michael Beinhorn. They felt like they'd have an easier time working just amongst themselves. They do bring in Adam Casper, who was one of the engineers on Super Unknown. So Chris Cornell has said, you know, it was having a fifth cook in the kitchen diluting things. So the, the band felt like they could figure out things themselves at this point, didn't want someone kind of directing them or telling them how to sound or how they to play. They just need somebody they, to like
1: set up everything yeah. and take care and hit record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically.
0: And that ties into, you know, they wanted this record to have a bit more of the live sound that they had, make it a little bit more raw around the edges. I mean, when you listen to Soundgarden, you're like, there's a band with feedback and yeah. all kinds of stuff going on. So they wanted to, to keep that quality in the music. So they start writing in 1995. They try out some of the material live, play some shows. Then they head into the studio later that year. They record it in Seattle at Pearl Jam guitarist Stone Gossard's Studio Litho. They record through the winter and then they basically have their album. They release the album in May of 1996. And this album sounds very different from other Soundgarden records. It's brighter. They're less reliant on those heavy riffs that you've come to know from previous records. They're exploring a lot of different sounds. There's more acoustic guitar on there. And a lot of that is due to the songwriting going on behind the scenes.
1: So one thing that you have to understand about about Soundgarden is that if you buy a a Greatest Hits by Soundgarden, such as their their first Greatest Hits collection, which is called A-Sides, if you buy that and open it up and read through the liner notes, pretty much every major song is exclusively written by Chris Cornell. Music and lyrics. Music and lyrics by Chris Cornell. That's that. Now, if you buy a Soundgarden album... You're gonna see a lot more variety. You're gonna see songs written by, you know, music written by Ben Shepherd, but lyrics by Chris Cornell, or music with by, you know, Kim Dial, and you know, all lyrics and every it's it's all gonna be very different. But the the hits, the, the big songs that everyone knows, especially like Black Hole Sun, is is all Chris Cornell. And so the when Chris Cornell is in the studio creating down on the upside, he's saying, like, I wanna go in this direction. I wanna start adding all these different influences, I wanna start adding more like you said, acoustic guitar, weird stuff going on, whatever, and I want to move away from the sludgy riffs of like a song like Outshined where it's just like, you know, really classic sludgy metal stuff, he's like, we're done with that we're moving on, and the rest of the band or or at the very least, Kim is like, no, like, that's eliminating what makes Soundgarden Soundgarden. So we don't want to go in that direction. But at this point, like when Chris Cornell is your, your, the lead vocalist, the primary songwriter, and pretty much the face of Soundgarden, like what, you know, what can you do? And you you walk
0: in with this handful of songs that are clearly great songs. Yeah. Yeah. And so Thale talks a lot about this breakdown of collaboration on this record compared to previous records. So even though Cornell is coming in with those songs, there's still a lot of collaboration and people adding their own parts to to the songs. But notably, there's much less on this album, which is why Never the Machine Forever kind of stuck out to us. So Never the Machine Forever is the one track on here with lyrics and music by Kim Thale, which is different from every other song on this on this record. Thale really talks a lot about this where he says in recording down on the upside, he says, you know, I'm the guitarist, but everyone in the band can play guitar. So they're all coming in with their own ideas that I then have to, you know, learn not that, you know, that's an issue because you know, I'm in a band and that's how this works, but it's a little bit harder to get my sound on there when I'm playing, you know, someone else's riff or or, or what have you when they come in with the song Or, you know, I might add my signature stuff here or there, but, you know, it's not really mine. So I think in an effort to get something more that that sounded more like classic Soundgarden and also to get a little bit of his voice on there, both musically and lyrically, that's where Never the Machine forever comes in. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to choose that today.
1: When we selected Never the Machine Forever to record for, for this skipped on shuffle episode, I, 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 like I said at the top of the episode, I'm a huge Soundgarden fan. So I immediately knew like, oh, that's a good song. That's a fun song. It's interesting. And I, I knew that Kim had written it. So I was like, that's a good thing for us to talk about. But uh, you have a theory about about this song that takes it a lot further. And this is something that I didn't even think about until until we started talking about it. So this, this is this is pretty cool.
0: So I think that uh, Kim Thale with this song is kind of talking about his how he feels being in this band. You know, it, it might be greater than that. It might be, you know, being in the music industry. He's described it as a life and death match between an individual and a less specifically defined entity. And yes, it's based on personal experience. So, so, I, so I,
1: kind of ambiguous. Yeah. But. That less. I, I like that. He's like, you know, not saying that it's a person. He's not saying that it's a, the band. He's like an entity. But it's it, but then he throws in that it's definitely something that's from him. So yeah, I mean, w- so when we look at the lyrics and and like you said earlier about the sound of the track itself, how it has this like very classic old school Soundgarden kind of feel. Yeah, to it. Yeah, had this
0: been on Bad Motorfinger, you yeah. would have been like, oh yeah, 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 this, is, this, is yeah this is Soundgarden. Yeah. yeah,
1: right. Yeah, but th- on this record, it stands out kind of as a, like a sore thumb a little bit because it it does harken back to that old school sound on this record that's you know filled with you know decidedly quote-unquote new school sound garden. so it is really interesting that that this is all coming together like that
0: yeah and there's a lot of melodic stuff on this record and fail makes cornell scream like <laughs> like the old school sound on, on this song and i feel like it's definitely a, a standout track for you know bringing that intensity to this record. So taking a look at the lyrics, they start out with I can't live when it lives. It won't live if I die, which I think is him talking about his role in the band. Yeah. Like I I I have to be here because I'm part of this band, but if I leave this whole thing will certainly end or at least won't be you know, Soundgarden is everyone hears and remembers it. If you're familiar at all with Thales playing, it's a very unique style that if, if he was gone from the band, you, you wouldn't notice. Yeah,
1: I think that people tend to think of, like like I mentioned earlier, they, think, they tend to think of Soundgarden as almost like a Chris Cornell band with these three guys behind him. But when you have Matt Cameron's drumming and Ben Shepard's bass playing and then Kim's guitar playing, I mean, these guys, these guys are playing so unique as compared to anybody else like you could you could take out one member and put in another as kind of like a temporary replacement and that might work for like a tour or fill in a couple of dates kind of deal but once you take that creativity out each member has such a distinct sound to them that it just wouldn't work and i think kim is is sort of referencing that in in this in this opening line
0: yeah and i mean part of it is the just the time signature of the song. It's in this really weird time. I've read like three different interpretations of, I'm not quite sure where it settles. It's certainly not a four,
1: four, you know, like one, two, three, four, let's play. It's certainly not a Ramones song. Yeah,
0: Yeah. it's a very odd time signature. They all said he was just basically jamming with a drummer, Greg Gilmore, who had been in the, the famous Seattle band, Mother Love Bone, that they were just kind of playing around with riffs and just kind of settled into this weird groove. Uh, that ended up being the time signature of the song, um, but getting back to the lyrics, and again, I, I really feel like this is Kim talking to himself, where in, in saying "Come on, come down, come out from where you hide, get up, get off, get on with your life," I think he's kind of—it's it, a little bit of a pep talk to himself by being like, "You're—you're going to have to insert your voice here because clearly you're going to be drowned out unless you—you you, unless you say something and." In terms of saying something, I think it's getting the song on the record, uh, getting his sound in there, uh, and and speaking a little bit, even if it's through Cornell.
1: Yeah, and there's another stanza later on in the song. Uh, I fashion will and desire always. I and I survive. I guess that kind of sets it apart as being like like you're saying like this is more him, maybe not him against Soundgarden, but him thinking about himself and how he fits into Soundgarden and how he has to sort of rally himself to like continue on knowing that the, the larger machine, if you will, uh, the larger machine can't continue without him. And he wants the machine to continue. Like he, I don't think there's any point in the song where he says anything disparaging about Soundgarden itself. Like he's not like saying like Soundgarden sucks. My life sucks. This is stupid. He's more saying like, I want this to continue, but it's really, really difficult. And sometimes I need to look at myself in the mirror, which he actually says later on. Now I see myself clear. Why time I visualize I spy device in the mirror. So it's like, he's clearly looking at himself and saying like, why you know, why is this so difficult and how am I going to get through the next day, which as we know is, you know, not far off is the band going to actually completely break up. So this might be almost like a prophetic kind of thing where he's looking down the road in the future and thinking to himself, will this band survive? I don't know, but I'm going to rally and and stick with it as long as I possibly can.
0: Quite remember my first introduction to Soundgarden. I'm sure I must have heard something on the radio. I definitely remember seeing the Black Hole Sun video and thinking this is a weird yeah. video with melting Barbies <laughs> <laughs> and and looking back like weird CGI yeah, effects. It was a weird it, video. It, it's a very strange video. Yeah. Uh, but I remember that, and I think my my first kind of connection to to Soundgarden was when Down on the Upside came out. And I remember going to the store and buying that record along with Stone Temple Pilots' "Tiny Music" songs from the Vatican gift shop. And looking back, I'm I I'm like, what a great purchase I made that day. That is, that, like, is, that
1: is, yeah. And I think it's notable that you remember that, like you know, I yeah, can't I, I don't remember what what records I bought, but that's yeah, you bought two of like probably one of the you know probably two of the greatest records of the '90s like on the same day. <laughs> yeah.
0: So I I I feel like not only are these like cool albums, but also sort of laid the groundwork for me as I listened to more and more music that I'm pretty accepting of a diversity of songs and sounds on a record. Like I, I don't have this aversion to to anything strange or experimental on a record. I, I don't feel like there always has to be all this cohesion. and I think those those two tiny music by STP and down on the upside, by Soundgarden are two great examples of just having all these different sounds on a single record and it's still being, you know, this one band, it's just these different aspects of a band that are able to be expressed on, on, on a single album. Uh, and that really got me into Soundgarden. I think it was also a summer that I sat and I think I did nothing but watch like MTV videos because <laughs> there was so much good music coming out. This was, like the summer of like 96 was kind of like this last hurrah of a lot of these uh, grunge bands. And I also remember uh, Beck's Odele coming out around right, that yeah. time. And that was like a huge influence on me. Speaking of experimental weird sounding stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I just, I remember all those things at that time. So that I, I think it was this kind of this era of really, finding where i fit musically and and starting to get together a record collection and being someone who's like more able to 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 say with confidence i like this band and i own their records because I think I was probably like 12 at the time. So I didn't have too many, you know, too many CDs at that time. So it was kind of a big deal when I would go out and, you know, hand over like 15 bucks for a CD that kind of meant something at, at the time that I feel like that's a quality that's been lost in kind of downloading. Cause you can, you know, find stuff wherever or just stream it. Uh, but to, you know, hand over $15 of money that I probably had to yeah, you know, I, scrape together at the time as a
1: 12 year old, that's a commitment. Yeah, like yeah. that's, that's a big deal. Like that's not just jumping change for you like yeah you
0: know. so uh, and the other kind of distinct memory i have is uh Soundgarden breaking up i remember specifically where i was listening to the radio hearing that and being just like devastated i think because i had finally you know really connected with this band with down on the upside and then a short while later finding out what they're broken up already before i like really had a chance to uh see them live or kind of delve deeper into it uh and i think that kind of set me up to be like really devastated when bands we're breaking up. I mean, it was this time where just bands were just dissolving left and right that had come up through the late eighties and survived through the nineties. And these bands were just kind of disappearing. So bands like stone little pilots, smashing pumpkins, all, all these bands were in the process of ending or ending. Uh, and I just remember kind of just being bummed out that oh, I'm not going to get a chance to see all these bands that I've just started to really like grow with. And then you know, now 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 that I'm older and I reflect back, I'm like every single band breaks up, um, like twenty times. Yeah, gets back together eventually. Whether it's to record like some kind of like comeback record or do some sort of reunion tour, it kind of inevitably happens all the time. There's there's a few outliers there of bands that will never get back together, but I think now anytime I hear a band break up, I'm like, okay, I guess I have to wait a couple <laughs> couple of years, maybe a decade, and then I'm sure you know it'll it'll work itself out.
1: Speaking of bands breaking up and getting back together, as you mentioned earlier on the episode, the band after they broke up in 1997, they eventually did get back together and uh, record a new album and do a big tour and, and released a box set and all sorts of stuff. And uh, and and towards the end of the the band's career, you know, around the time that Cornell died, they were you know ostensibly in the studio creating what would end up being their seventh record if it ever got finished and, and released. So, so you know, you were you were. You, Back in the day, didn't you didn't know wrong. it, yeah. Time. You didn't know it at the time, but you were going to be able to see them. But, uh, we, we, as in you and me, we actually went to see them on their tour that they did when they first got back together. So, just to give you a quick quick history here. The band, you know, announced that they were getting back together and then they did a tour where it was just them playing stuff from down on the upside and earlier. And then after they released King animal, they did another big bunch of touring where they played, you know, their older material mixed in with this King animal material. And then, you know, that that's how they continued on until Cornell unfortunately died. So you and I saw that tour where it was right after they had gotten back together again, but before King animal and we saw them in New Jersey and I, I I cannot tell you, I've seen a lot of concerts in my day. I can't tell you how many I've seen a lot. And, uh, and, and, I don't know what it was about this particular show, but it was just one of those concerts that will always stick with me. And I don't remember if it was the fact that I could see the floor rattling because they were so <laughs> fucking loud. I don't remember if it was because they played pretty much every song that I've ever wanted to hear Soundgarden play. I don't know if it was the fact that they sounded so good. And like you mentioned earlier, my my association with Soundgarden Live was was was... Thinking that they weren't a great live band at all because I, the recordings that we had from the Down on the Upside tour and even even some of the Super Unknown tour was was not you know I don't know I think the live on I five record is is an interesting you know an interesting photograph of a band you know in a tumultuous time and there's still some stuff on there that I'm like this is okay but yeah like you said like it's not good it's not rep- it's not representative of how good this band could be yeah so and so when we saw them I. I remember being revitalized by the band. I remember leaving that show thinking to myself like, wow, like I I love this band. I have loved this band, but now I feel like, I understand why I love this band so much more than I did before I went into that concert.
0: Yeah. I think you get these reunion shows and, and the idea is like all the bands just kind of trying to cash in on their history. But to me going to that show was just like, here's a band that finally like figured itself out and knows how to play these songs now. And, yeah, I don't think they've ever sounded better than when, you know, they they broke up and yeah, you know, well, went it, went several ways for a while. And then some something about coming back together and now they're able to like really play. Powerfully, it was just I, I, yeah, it was yeah. just
1: an amazing, amazing show, and yeah, it, it just I guess yeah, it just took it just took a 13 year break <laughs> for them to get back together and be like, oh no, we're gonna do this not because somebody's telling us to, not because it's part of the touring cycle of of, of releasing a record, not because you know Metallica asked us to do it <laughs> or whatever. We're doing it because the four of us want to do it. You know, sure, there was probably some financial stuff involved as well. You know, obviously that was a big tour and it was gonna make them a lot of money, so that might have been a little bit of an incentive to get back on the road. But you think about it, Matt Cameron, he's super busy. He's, he's the, he's the actual drummer for Pearl Jam. Like he's not a, a guy who's just kind of got time to spare. And Cornell is got, you know, he was in audio sleep, but obviously he was broken up at that time, but still Cornell is like a busy solo career. He could do all sorts of things. Yeah, and
0: fail and, and Shepard. It's not like they're yeah, sitting around doing nothing. I mean, they're playing with other people. But and, they, and they decided,
1: yeah, they decided, no, we, this is the time we're, we're in the right head space. We've, 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 we've buried a lot of hatchets and we're ready to play. And yeah, I remember seeing that show with you and just being like, holy shit, I had no idea going in that this was going to be what it was going to be like. You that know?
0: was <laughs> that was also the show. I don't know if you remember telling me this. I, I remember leaving and you were just like... I'm not going to another Soundgarden show because that's what I want my memory. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that's, that's true. the only memory I want to that's have That's true, of. <laughs> you're right. I, I
1: totally did say that. Yeah, no, it, it's true because that kind of happened with me, the Smashing Pumpkins. Like I saw the Smashing Pumpkins on the Melancholy tour and they were incredible. I had never seen a band as as on fire as, as they were. And then I saw them later and I was just like like this is this is just bad like they were just you know billy doesn't have any oomph to him anymore he doesn't sing like he used to and i think we talked about this in our in our smashing pumpkins episode so i don't want to rehash it too much but yeah but i was like no like i want to forever remember this soundgarden <laughs> show i don't know if i ever want to see them again and then you know we did we did see i saw some set lists from their from their king animal tour and, and you know it didn't look like as good of a set list because they threw in a lot of king animal stuff which is not a bad record yeah but it's it's solid it's solid but and, and worth a listen but but yeah, yeah, it doesn't. Though, yeah, it doesn't I think we have the saw same... them play like twenty something songs, and every single one of them was like, "Yes, this is oh you know." They play a song and, and, and they'd be digging like, out stuff from the early. Yeah, the, they were, the were playing early stuff, too. and they were playing a lot of deeper cuts from from Super Unknown and 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 uh, Bad Motorfinger, and they, they they kind of they they a little they ignored a little bit. They pretty much just played the major hits from down from on the down upside, the upside yeah, which yeah. was a little disappointing. But uh, but still, it was it was such an amazing show, and so yeah, so whenever I think about Soundgarden Garden now. Whenever I think about listening to their music, or think about Chris Cornell, or or when I found out that Chris Cornell died, I I I don't remember where I was or what I was doing when I found out that Soundgarden broke up in ninety in ninety seven. But I do specifically remember everything about the day that I found out that Chris Cornell died. That was such a huge blow to me. And the first thing I thought of was like, I'm so glad that I got to see that show, and I'm so glad that I'll get to remember that band and and Cornell in that moment, and saying to myself, "Wow, I am seeing." this band at the peak like like a lot of people would say like the peak was super unknown but for me personally the peak was that show that i saw i was just like this is it like everything that i've listened to from this band has been culminating to this exact moment and it was such an amazing time and when i when i heard that chris Cornell died the first thing i thought of was i'm so glad i got to see them before that happened
0: thank you for listening to this episode of skipped on shuffle Be sure to visit our webpage at skippedonshuffle.com where we have a blog and links to our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and also a YouTube page where we perform the songs that we discuss in these episodes.
1: We are trying our best to keep Skipped on Shuffle, a ad-free podcast. So if you are interested in helping to support that, please visit our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Skipped on Shuffle. Any donations that come there could go straight to keeping uh, Skipped on Shuffle, a ad-free experience and go straight to paying for the various costs that are associated with running this podcast.